Welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. My guest this week is Justin Campbell. Justin leads the Microsoft Offensive Research and Security Engineering team at Microsoft. Uh, there's a new acronym there called MORSE, M-O-R-S-E. It's kind of like a, a red, blue, green teaming at Microsoft there. Justin, welcome to the show. What is Morse and how do you describe your role there? Uh, yeah, so I'm the engineering manager for Morse. Morse uh, is tasked with helping Microsoft ship secure operating systems. So if there's an operating system built here, uh, my team is responsible for working with the engineering teams that ship those to ship the most secure product possible. Uh, from outside Microsoft, probably the most relatable thing is uh, Windows security. How is that different from what the MSRC does, the SWI team does, and a bunch of all the other security research outfits coming out of Microsoft? Like, where do you live and what's like, what's the purpose of this additional Microsoft security team? Yeah, absolutely. So MSRC has a company-wide remit and their core function is response, bounty outreach, you know, reach, reach outside the company, including like taking submissions from external. And they work with every product in the company. Uh, my team specifically just works with OS engineering teams. And so we're a product security team. So we aren't making security features or security products. You know, teams like Defender um, working on AV products or EDR endpoint, endpoint products. Uh, my team is solely tasked with helping ship the most secure operating system possible. And and what, what is the day-to-day uh, operations of your team? Give me a give me a sense of the the goal, the objectives, the responsibilities of the team. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you know, obviously the the goal and the outcome, like I mentioned, is shipping those secure products, those secure operating systems. But we really do that in concert with other security teams at the company. And we are taking a very, uh, you know, the buzzword now is shift left, right? We're taking a very shift left approach, baking uh, durable solutions into uh, how developers work. And so that can mean enhancing the tool chain, like the compiler, that can mean building scalable automated detections, like static analysis or making fuzzing more approachable for developers. But we also take a, you know, that kind of red team attacker mindset where we try to hack things before they ship or for code that's already shipped out there, we try to get to it before an offensive actor outside the company gets to it and then provide all of that as feedback to developers, incorporate into how they work, incorporate into the security of the product. And then that green team element is really that we also have the resources to make those investments on behalf of teams. That can mean, again, building new tools, um, enhancing tools, enhancing the product directly, that sort of thing. So it's really you know full spectrum in, in how we approach it. Your team just actually came out of the, the shadows, so to speak, I mean, publicly, mm-hmm. uh, with the technical publication on the SolarWinds SolarWinds-Surview vulnerability. There was a zero-day vulnerability, compromise, uh, as O'Day. Talk a little bit about how you got looped into that and what is Microsoft doing finding a zero day and disclosing a zero day in a SolarWinds product? Yeah, absolutely. So um, so like I mentioned, we work in concert with security teams across the whole company. So that particular compromise was identified by Mystic or Microsoft Threat Intelligence. And uh, so they have that expertise for that threat hunt you know, go and find those compromises out in the world. We have that expertise to have found the vulnerability, write an exploit, et cetera. And so the blog was really about how we were able to take this uh, threat intelligence signal. How though? Can you talk a little bit about that though? How do you move from threat intel signal to Mm -hmm. discovery of O'Day? all the way down to identifying the actual vulnerability. Uh, and, and I don't mind if you go a little back as well. And how does Mystic, well, like what's the bit of telemetry that pops that up as something suspicious for Mystic to throw it, off the, throw it over the wall to you and say, hey, we have something here interesting. 
give me a can you provide a little bit of a walkthrough about Microsoft's capabilities there? Yeah, well, so I can't, you know, I can't really give you. Well, a, yeah, whatever you can see. Oh yeah, yeah, I, I can't really give you an expert view of of what they're doing, but I mean, you kind of hit the nail on the head in terms of like uh, broad approaches, right? The shift to the cloud has really opened a ton of new um, avenues for telemetry, and I think the thing that makes Mystic so amazing is the like breadth and reach of what they have and their ability to then synthesize that into something actionable for a team like mine. So how we actually went from that signal to the find the zero day was literally, um, you know, they were able to then work with the compromised customer, figure out what the deployment was like. And then we were able to, um, basically we started from scratch. Okay. Knowing this. Good. So give me that, give me that little bit of from scratch. When you say from scratch, what do you get? What does the artifact look like? Yeah. So we start with, you know, how is it deployed? How is it configured? What is on the attack surface? And we do the exact same thing with windows. We do the exact same thing with any product we want to secure where we start with what's on the attack surface. We start with an analysis the same way an attacker would, who's working from the outside. And I think in this particular case, we opted for fuzzing. So we uh, built a fuzzer for the, well, actually I think in some cases here, we had, we applied a fuzzer we already had for an inter- internal product, the same protocol. Right, um, so you'll, 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 throw a fuzzer, you'll throw a fuzzer at the software. Yes. At specific sections, because you already, you already kind of have an idea what you're looking for, or you're just fuzzing the whole thing and just looking for some sort of exploitable crash? In, in this particular instance, we knew the very narrow surface that was exposed to the internet. Right, so you fuzzed that. So we fuzzed that, exactly. Got it. Yeah, and so then you get an exploitable crash or a set of crashes that we deem exploitable. Uh, and then this is where the, I think kind of the black magic I can't really talk a ton about happened was we then looked for the intersection of what we had found and we thought would be exploitable with what would then line up with the compromised signals that they had in the telemetry that, that Mystic had. Got and, it. So that's yeah. where there's a little bit of magic sauce happening there between what your fuzzer pops up as bang exploitable, put it in, putting it next to whatever telemetry signals and... And, and magic that MSR, not MSRC, Mystic, Windows Defender, and all those Azure uh, uh, telemetry kicks up. You have like a something that helps you zero in on specific things. Yeah. So what we did was we actually went and uh, wrote a complete exploit for one of the crashes that we thought lined up best. And then what we did was we were able to work with Mystic to throw it at a box they were monitoring, and they saw that all of the same alerts kind of lined up. We can't say with 100% confidence this was the one that was abused. Um, but we but can, you know for sure it's zero day. It's a zero day exploitable vulnerability, right? Exactly, exactly. Just just to close the loop on this one, your blog post actually identified that there were some components there missing ASLR, 15-year-old mitigation that's been there since FISTA days. Is that is that commonplace you're finding in, in third-party software where they're not opted into some of these old mitigations? Or is this a one-off case where, uh, you know, a, a developer mistake or, or some weakness in their system caused that? Is ASLR something, the absence of ASLR, something you run into fairly often? So I think, yeah, we look, we look comprehensively, right? We're looking at things that are older and unmaintained. And even then, I think it's, it's relatively uncommon, right? I don't have hard data for you, but anecdotally, I would say it's very uncommon to see ASLR still missing. Surprising, right? Yeah, it was pretty surprising. You mentioned shift left. Shift left is the newfangled, new kids phrase and terminology for what old, old fools like me call the SDLC back in the day, right? So how do you define shift left? Shift left, I think, recognizes the same, same way that we view software development, that it needs to be incremental and iterative. We need to be constantly looking for feedback in all the signals that we're given and capitalizing on those feedback signals to constantly improve our processes. So uh, one of the things that, that my team does is 
for every important and critical vulnerability, those being uh, you know, Microsoft severities for high set things, uh, we go into a root cause analysis on why things that are earlier in the pipeline didn't catch the things that we found later. So the best way to find something is in an IDE, you know, never have it make it into a build, never have it make it to a PR, uh, but then maybe it makes it to a PR and we catch it there. And so the longer a bug lives, the you know harder it is for a developer to then reason about how they can fix it, uh, the more compatibility risk we have in fixing it, et cetera. And so everything that we're doing, whether it's static analysis, fuzzing, manual review, bounty, uh, we're always looking for ways that something earlier, more automatable, more scalable could have caught that. And I think you'll see um, uh, you'll see patterns of that where you know an issue will come in as a bounty case, and then we'll make sure that there's a fuzzer to shake those out. And if that generates a pattern of issues, we'll go and write a new static analysis checker or a new uh, static query to then go and ferret those out even further. And we're getting even better and better at presenting developers with that feedback sooner. So uh, I think one of the things I'm most proud of recently is uh, in the IDE, before you commit your code, you'll actually get a little red squiggle in Visual Studio or VS Code with, hey, you've got a programming error here that we think is going to be a buffer overflow, a race condition. We can help developers in real time rather than having to wait days or weeks to get feedback or necessarily waiting for us to then, you know, get a fuzzer running. And that's the best outcome, right? That's the shifting as left as possible is this prevent vulnerabilities from getting into the code. In the, in the, I mean, if we go shift left, right? Furthest left is this kind of, let's prevent vulnerabilities from getting into the code by making sure design reviews are right. We're using safe by default languages, safe by default libraries and so on. What, what happens after that? You talked about static analysis, dynamic analysis, tests and fuzzing and so on. Are you guys using only internally uh, built Microsoft tools? Or can you talk a little bit about how you decide on the tools you use there on as you shift left and how you decide on the open source like decide on what to open source and what to push out to the rest of the community we absolutely do not rely solely on internal tools um, i think that would be a, a major oversight on our part um, at the very least we know that people outside are going to run afl they're going to run libfuzzer they're going to run syscaller against our code and i think anybody who spent time with fuzzing tools with binary analysis understands that you know some tools are better at finding certain patterns patterns than others right mm-hmm. and so um, a big part of what we do is make sure that we are running the kind of de facto standard tools right to make sure that we're finding those same issues that would have been found externally or cheaply uh, but then there are yes there are internal uh, tools that we build and I think anytime there's um, third party potential for impact we look for how do we contribute that to an existing open source project how do we open source those things? Uh, you, you'll probably be able to see on GitHub, there's three or four tools that our team has shared, but more often than not, you'll see us contributing back to open source projects that we already leverage. Things like I mentioned, like Syscaller, like right. Lifebunder, uh, contributing back to sanitizers like Address Sanitizer as part of the LLVM project, building and enhancing Windows capability for those for those things uh, so that the rest of the world can benefit from them too, right? One of the things that uh, I think I've spent maybe the most time on or maybe the longest project that I've been a part of here was bringing address sanitizer to the Microsoft uh, Visual Studio compiler. And so a big part of that was enhancing the work that Google had done to improve and complete Windows compatibility, and then working with our compiler team to you know, build that into the MSVC compiler. And now you can use the exact same runtime that Google uh, built originally 
as part of uh, the MSVC uh, MSVC toolchain to then build your own projects with address sanitizer as well. Right. It's definitely a core philosophy of ours is we want to be sharing that goodness with the whole world. The more we can share and learn from each other as a as a community, the better. And uh, yeah. I'm uh, I'm glad to see things trending in that direction. Definitely. One of the things about the shift, the, this move shift left, is that each one of these methods, each one of these kind of divine reviews using safe languages, static analysis tools, reviews, bug bounties, all these things that go into shift left comes at a cost, right? And there's a cost and there's friction associated with it. How are you guys measuring that cost and making sure you're balancing it in a way that tells you you're doing the right thing? So that is an incredibly difficult question with an incredibly nuanced answer. Um, I think the, the best way I can answer that is it's very case by case, right? Every uh, security is definitely uh, an entire field of, of gray spaces, right? What is the right performance trade-off? What is the right compatibility versus security trade-off? And I think every area of every product is going to have its own trade space in those. So w- the, one of the ways we measure our own team's effectiveness is in thinking about total compromises, regardless of source, like how are customers in the world getting compromised and what signals do we have for those? But in terms of you know how hard do we push or how um, high of a bar do we hold on any particular thing is a very nuanced discussion and very case by case. You know, probably not a very appealing answer, but it's the reality. But there is a way to measure it. <laughs> uh, well, I think that it's, it can be difficult to get objective measurement of, of security. I and think it, it differs from organization to organization and size and maturity and... Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah, absolutely. But I think the, the big thing for us is then being able to, in some way, quantify the return on investment that the teams are making. And so, you know, I mentioned there's all of these like opportunities for feedback, all these signals that we get. Um, and that can range from, like I said, like bounty cases or, um, you know, internal fuzzing findings or even just Watson crashes, right? Like quality is ultimately a superset of a lot of the things we're worried about here. I think being able to show a retrospective in uh, what we think we'll be able to pay down in terms of debt. Hey, we're seeing a lot of external bounty reports of this category. Uh, our static analysis is finding you know patterns of X, Y, and Z, uh, and you could make these entirely go away by you know activity, right. changing a library, introducing a new coding pattern, etc. Um, we're able to kind of like I said, take a retrospective look and say like we could eliminate thirty percent of the things that your team is struggling with with this one change. Now let's get your engineers to then estimate what they think it would cost to build and maintain going forward. And then you can kind of, you know, estimate some ROI. Uh, and then of course, once something's implemented, we're always then tracking how effective was it? Did it truly mitigate it or truly eliminate it in the way that we thought it would durably? Um, and that's, you know, like any software engineering project, something you kind of right. do ongoing. You mentioned squiggly code in, 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 in developer tools and, 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 you know, providing that sort of guidance upfront while developers are in the pipeline. Memory corruption issues and memory safety dates back 20 years. I've been writing about this from the very, very beginning. If I looked at uh, Google's Project Zero, zero uh, in the wild zero day database, that spreadsheet that uh, Maddie Stone publishes, right? The majority of all in the wild zero days, close to 90% are still memory corruption, memory safety issues. We as an industry have invested a ton in addressing memory corruption, memory safety issues. And now it feels like we are at a stage where this stuff isn't going away. You're, you're in the trenches. Talk me off the ledge that we won't be talking about memory corruption issues in 10 years. I don't know if I'm making sense, but it feels like we're, 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 we're on a hamster wheel. Yeah, we absolutely uh, internally talk about the, the memory corruption treadmill, like uh, you know, chasing these kinds of bugs. And I think, I can't say that my view is shared universally, but 
my opinion is that Marionsafe languages, things like C, are going to be the leaded gasoline of our era. They are things that appear in the moment to be fit for purpose and uh, are in fact calling out, uh, causing all of this intangible, invisible harm that we're then dealing with on a societal level. Um, I would that's say- why that's why I asked about cost. That's why I asked about cost <laughs> the previous language because now there's a talk to, to get beyond where we are today. There's this cost of rewriting, right? Rewriting everything from scratch. There's all kinds of talk about moving be away from memory safe languages. And 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 as you answer the question, think about that as well and help me understand your your, your opinion one. And where do we go from here? Yeah, I, I think there's a huge spectrum of choices. Uh, and I think you know my team is in a position where we're forced to employ all of them to make tangible progress. Uh, I would bet good money. You know, you ask your question, like, will we still be talking about this in 10 years? I'm betting this will still be a problem in 10 years in some areas, right? There's just too much code written in too many places for it to truly And there's be. some legacy stuff that we can't touch. We won't be able to go back and touch, right? Exactly. But in terms of, you know, spectrum of approaches, I think there are, um, you know, things all the way um, from, like, formal proofs around... Um, memory safety of, of existing systems and existing code. Uh, we've definitely engaged with uh, Microsoft Research and internal organizations to apply generated safe C code. So you still get all of the compatibility and performance benefits. Um, there was a recent blog on that where we applied automatically generated memory, provably memory safe C to the Azure networking stack. And not only do they have uh, no boundary, like provably no boundary conditions, like no buffer overflows, they actually got a performance increase because the automatically generated code was no longer doing redundant things, was always taking the optimal patterns, and never made mistakes or forgot anything. Uh, and then there are other kind of safer libraries that can turn, maybe it can't eliminate the issues, but it makes them no longer security relevant. Things like uh, the guideline support library span class allows you to safely access buffers where it turns it into a fault instead of a corruption event. Uh, and then all the way on the other end of the spectrum, you have things like rewrites in Rust or Go or other kind of like boundary safe languages, right? Each of them kind of have their own pockets that they then need to think about and consider, but you know, it would it'd be a, a stronger foundation. And so I think we're, we're investing in, in every and all of those, right? I can't tell every person at Microsoft to go rewrite their feature at Rust. Um, there are certain language and compatibility things like we need to continue exposing C and C++ and COM APIs where like Rust won't be the right answer. But for but 10 years from now, we'll still be on this treadmill. I think uh, I would like to think that the areas that we were talking about in 10 years will be more and more focused, more uh, like a smaller and smaller segment where we'll be able to think about how do we mitigate and control access to these uh, pervasive, like risky areas. Yeah. And the ones that we can't remove from the attack service, the things we have to continue relying on, will be able to be refactored, uh, rebuilt, or you know, hardened in kind of one of these durable ways that I was talking yeah. about. Yeah, we've tried with CFI and CFG, and it feels like it, you know, it's, it's, it's one roadblock being jumped over after another roadblock being jumped over, and we're and, and these things take six or seven years to uptake from developer side. And it feels like after six and seven years, you get there and then there's a bypass. And then we start from scratch all over again. How do you wake up in the morning energized to work in the midst of what this reality feels like? Yeah, I, I think actually um, a big part of it is the like the realization that there is no silver bullet mitigation coming to save us, right? Uh, CET 
I'm very excited for CET to hit the world. It's going to reduce the number of exploitable bugs that exist in code bases everywhere. But it's in two happen. years, there'll be big CET bypasses will be in every piece of malware, right? I mean, that's the reality of... <laughs> well, I think what you'll see is you'll see some bugs exploited in the presence of CET. But what you won't be able to observe in this in-the-wild exploita- exploitation lens is the number of bugs that the per- that attacker then had to discard because they weren't suitable for exploitation under the presence of CFG plus CET plus, 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 plus. And so I think that none of those mitigations is going to get us to zero or provably secure. It just won't. And so instead, uh, thinking about it as a much more fundamental problem that we then have to shift left, if you'll pardon the expression, right? Um, CET, CFG, ASLR, Dapper NX, like those things are on the very most right. There, we're trying, like the bug, the corruption has already happened and we're trying to stop you from turning it into a working exploit. That is, you can't go any further right than that. Fundamentally, we're pushing everything left of how do we get the bugs to not exist and how do we build durable improvements to safety and security into the system? Uh, we're just, we're going to be on a very, like, we're going to be on a very different trajectory and a very different path. I don't think there are any, like I said, there's no silver bullet coming to save the day on any of those things. Give me give me your take from Microsoft, from your porch at Microsoft. We're in the middle of October. There have been 73 documented, just the ones documented so far, in the wild zero-day vulnerabilities uh, uh, caught during exploitation. 73 for 2021, we're in October. Fast increase over previous years. Why is that? Is it because adversaries are a lot more active or are we getting gotten better at finding and seeing them? Help me understand from your porch how you view this, what... what we outsiders see as an explosion of in the wild zero day activity. Yeah, so I have um, maybe not unique, but a, a you know slightly different perspective here. So I spent over a decade prior to Microsoft in the offensive, like on the offensive side, on the supply side of problems, if you will. And so my, I think you should, I think you should explain that though. This is uh, not cybercrime activity, right? No, no, no. It was definitely not. <laughs> Uh, I, I spent time in the National Capital Region as a U.S. government contractor, right, you know, right. very focused on offensive cybersecurity problems. No, I know. When you say, hey, I was, I was offense before <laughs> I came here, it sounded like... <laughs> yeah, so I think, uh, yeah, definitely no ransomware uh, that, that has my name on it that I'm aware of. So, uh, but what I will say is that my, my assumption and, you know, my intuition based on everything that I know and can see is that this is much more that the entire industry is getting much better at detecting. And part you of think that, detection is so much better, uh, uh, sharing of data, ability to find artifacts, tools, people, all of that, skills, everything is better? I, I think uh, it's a result of a massive investment in conjunction with this um, you know, paradigm shift where everybody's working from the cloud, where uh, companies and teams with access to more and more signals, events, telemetry can then find things that they never would have had visibility into before. So in a way, you know, cloud and like the shift to cloud is really helping teams be more effective. Then teams are then recognizing that it's a worthwhile investment. So companies are then putting more in, um, spending more resources, more time building the teams out that then go and invest in improving their tools, improving their capabilities. And so right now, I think we're in this like virtuous cycle where we realize we can put more in and get more out. There will come a point where we will plateau, we'll hit some diminishing returns, and you know that'll be an interesting conversation to have of like how much more do we put in. But I think we're still very, very early days in us getting great return on every detection effort that we're making. So you think this volume has always been there? We're just as an industry with the way 
networks are set up now and the way infrastructure is set up now, we're just better at finding. I think it's very likely uh, there has not been a ton of, there is probably some floor or baseline of activity and we are just now starting to get a, get a peek at the iceberg. Yes. Uh, I'll let you out here with one last question. What is um? What would you say is the, the the top priority for computing moving forward? I'm going to put you on the spot and give you the the the, the wand of the cyber czar to wave around, and we have to fix this specific thing. What worries you the most? What is the what should be computing's priority as we look for that at that cybersecurity space moving forward? That is a uh, that is a great question. I think. If I could wave a magic wand, but let's let's imagine let's imagine I have a, a technology magic wand. Um, well, maybe it would be time travel. Uh, but I think uh, you know if I had just the technology magic wand, I could replace everything. I think it'd be something we talked about today, and you know, introducing memory safe languages. But in practice, the thing I would very much focus on is effectiveness measures. And I think our our industry is um, sometimes overly focused on the particular activities, right? So, um, you know, like I said, SDL is best practices, and we want to be making sure that we're doing all of those things, but it's insufficient to perform the activities. I think we need to be much more outcome focused, much more thinking about the result of the product that we build. When I say we, I mean, as a, as a community mm-hmm. of security professionals, as a profession of software engineering, we need to be much more conscientious about the thing that we are making and the results we get rather than checking the boxes or performing the activities because we know that that's the thing we're supposed to be doing. Are you optimistic about security? I mean, I mean, are you an optimist generally that the work you do is making things better and as an industry, we are marching forward in the right direction? So um, I think as a security professional, I am naturally a pessimist. I think about worst case outcomes. I think about, you know, what could this be abused for and used for? Um, but, you know, sitting in the seat I am, I am in now, I do in some ways feel optimistic. Like, I don't think we can see the end from here, but I can see the recognition um, just like globally that we need to be doing something different, right? All of these activities that we've been engaged in for the last 20 years is not getting us a different outcome. And that I think is leading to an appetite for substantive change. And I will tell you that the, you know, the first day that I feel like there is no longer an opportunity to make a real impact, I won't be in this job anymore, right? I think uh, this job is, uh, you know, any defender's job is incredibly difficult and incredibly challenging. And you have to feel like you have that opportunity for impact, that you have the ability to move the needle and make, you know, constant progress. Uh, I definitely see that here. I definitely see, you know, a long list of challenges between us and done for sure. But I see that there is real appetite from customers, from Microsoft to fundamentally shift the way we think about things and approach things differently. There's also a lot of work to do, right? Long road. Right. I'll leave it right there. I always like to leave it on a positive note. Thank you very much, Justin. Appreciate the time. And as usual, whenever you have, whenever you feel like you want to come back and you have something to say, the invitation is always there. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Ryan. Thank you.